I am so excited and humbled to be elected as the next Congresswoman for District 20. History made in several ways. There's no way I can ever fill his shoes, but I promise you that our district and our voice is heard. A new Congresswoman fills a legendary seat. I, Perla Tavares Hanman, do not partake on any shams. Sparks fly over the superintendent search. Identifying a candidate in seven days just seems um, outrageous. Miami-Dade and Broward schools search for a new leader. There has to be a tunnel. There can be no bridge ever. Battle against a bridge. What will trains, boats, and cars do at the new river? It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I am Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with South Florida's newest member of Congress elected this week. Sheila Sherfulis McCormick is scheduled to be sworn in Tuesday evening as the new Democratic rep for District 20 in Broward and Palm Beach counties. The road to Washington was long, expensive, and not without some bumps along the way. And surely there will be bumps to come. Her victory gives Democrats a 10-vote advantage in the U.S. House, at least until the midterm selections this fall, when she will have to run again. But for now, she is the U.S. Representative from the 20th District. Sheila Sherfalis McCormick joins us now live via Zoom. Congresswoman, first time I can say that. Congresswoman, good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, we are glad you are. Let's begin with kind of a tough question, and that is during your campaign, you promised the members, the constituents in the 20th Congressional District, many of whom are poor, that they would be getting a $1,000 a month check from Washington if they earn less than $75,000 a year. Some of those people may be wondering, all right, she got elected. Where's my check? What do you say to them? Well, we are definitely pushing our People's Prosperity Plan. That is one of the biggest bills that we're moving forward. And we're also looking into community initiatives through Congress's Power Now of the Purse, where we can actually um, earmark 10 projects. So we know that the community needs help, especially when it comes to housing. And inflation is a huge problem for our district also. So we're taking affirmative steps to make that a reality. All right, so let me pick up where Michael left off. The, the campaign promise that really did resonate with voters, we saw that firsthand, was $1,000 a month for everyone who makes $75,000 a year or less. That's what you had billed as the prosperity plan. Um, and we've talked a lot prior to the election and after about how you fill that promise as a congresswoman on a federal level. I know there's, we've talked about it, there have been some municipalities trying that out. But how, how are you going to deliver on that $1,000 a month plan? Well, as I just mentioned, so we have, we're pushing forth our prosperity plan and we're going to be submitting that into Congress after we're sworn in. But also Congress has the ability to do community um, initiatives. These community in initiatives allow us to earmark funding for the district. So for example, we see in Atlanta that the mayor there did it through her, through private organizations. And we also saw that in Los Angeles, they did it through municipalities. So I'm able to provide the funding through community initiatives so we can have that money coming immediately to the community. So there are multiple layers and multiple steps that we can take to make it a, re a reality. And have and that's you, what, I'm sorry, if you, have you laid out that plan, practically speaking, is this a check uh, from that funding that you earmark for certain people? How do you identify those people? What's the calculation? Does it get an envelope and a stamp every month? That, practically speaking, how does that happen? 
Well, practically, if we're going through the direction of the community initiatives, it would be one set fund amount. And that set fund amount would still keep the same requirement of 75,000, depending on less than 75,000, depending on how much money we're able to allocate, that's really gonna drive how we can start our first payments. And that's just a secondary portion or secondary means or plan B, if you would say. Our primary way of providing these funding is gonna be through a bill we're putting forth in Congress. But since we see right now the urgency of the situation in our district, when it comes to housing, when it comes to inflation, and also with these new variants that are rising and becoming more and more contagious, it becomes more of an immediate need for us to have direct funding and direct payments to our constituents. And so that's where we'll be turning to these programs. There'll be the similar program that we have in the People's Prosperity Plan. However, now we're looking at different sources of funding because as we see pilot programs evolving throughout the entire country, we're seeing that now there are better ways to do it. And we wanna make sure that we're implementing best practices as we're pushing out the funding for our community that they need. Yeah, Congresswoman, uh, you are of Haitian descent, proud of it. Your parents are from Haiti. They came here, made a success as you did in the healthcare business. Um, Haiti right now, everybody would concede, is a mess. Uh, the, really, if there's been a new arrest and the assassination of uh, President Juvenal Moise, but there really nobody has come to trial. Who knows where that stands? And in your district in South Florida, there are roughly, we think, about 500,000 Haitian Americans. They're looking to you for being a champion, for leading them and the cause for them and for a better Haiti. What do you say to them? Well, I'm definitely a champion for every need that we have as Haitian-Americans and what's going on in Haiti. I've already met with different members of the Haiti caucus. I've had extension, extensive conversations with um, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman Levin, and Congressman Gregory Meeks on what plan we're going to have going forth. As of right now, it's looking like we're really going to take on a fact-finding mission first. There's legislation that we're going to be actually submitting into Congress in the following week, which is going to start, start to deliver some, um, some results and some answers to the community about what's really going on in Haiti and try to increase the instability that we have in Haiti. Well, which is in, 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 excuse me, in terms of the instability in Haiti, uh, the gangs that are in Haiti pretty much are running the country right now. And there has been a call among some people for a OAS or some kind of a military police force to go in and reestablish peace and order in Haiti. Do you favor that? Well, I think that there's multiple ways for us to handle it. We do know that there are gangs that are running Haiti, but for us to determine that we need to go into Haiti with boots on the ground, that's a determination that only a fact-finding mission could actually confirm for us. And that's why we're starting there. There's a lot of conversations about what's going on, but we believe that we need to send a group to actually see what's going on firsthand so we don't have the secondhand information. And a lot of the instability that has been going on in Haiti for years now needs to be addressed. And that's going to be a project, and that's going to be a plan that's going to be more extensive and not just like a, a one bill measure. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to partner with Haiti to help it first become stable and then find a long-term plan that will help Haiti move from, depend from dependency to sustainability. But we also see rising issues all over other small islands um, that we can help and make sure that we're encouraging positive relationship relationships, positive trade and agreements in other Caribbean islands, which are so present in our district also. 
Congresswoman-elect, I want to address an issue that is so prevalent for so many years, um, money in politics. The Democrats are usually the party who are campaigning on taking money out of politics, and yet everybody here knows money drives politics. And in especially your race, you, um, by the time the election came, had loaned your campaign $59, I'm sorry, I missed the decimal point, $5.9 million. Um, you raised $135,000. I just want to start with a wide open question. What, what does that say about a, a campaign and your campaign? Well, it says that, you know, it's really hard to run in any district. And if you look at our district, our district is a huge district. And our district is one of the only minority districts that we have in the state. And so it's unfortunate that it's so wide and so vast and it's kind of throwing all the minorities in. So for you to have a chance at representing such a large district that's so far, you really have to put everything into it. And so if we were able to increase more districts and more diversity and not clump everybody into one district, then we would be it would be easier for minority candidates. But the truth is our district actually needs a lot of help economically. A lot of our funding went to people in the community who we hired. We have we hired so many canvassers. We hired people to put up signs. We took every opportunity actually to create jobs for our district because it was so necessary, especially during this pandemic. But if we look at the, op the obstacles that we face in running in such a district, it is financial and that's why we need caps. There's no way that I wanted to put that amount of money into a race, but after going out there and seeing so many people who needed work, and I knew that I had the means to help them get work. My just my heart bled for them, and I just started hiring and putting people there. So um, I've always advocated against money in politics, especially when it comes from corporations. But it is a shame that to actually win an election, for us to actually even how much we're paying to advertise, um, there needs to be real guidelines and rules, or other people won't have an opportunity. Okay, especially I want. Um, I hate to interrupt you, but we we are up against the break. Uh, but there's a lot to unpack there. So we'll start there when we come back right with you in a couple of minutes, so stay tuned. Thank you. back with South Florida's newest Congresswoman-elect until Tuesday night when she becomes Congresswoman Sheila Scherfelis McCormick of District 20. Um, real quickly, Congressman, Congresswoman-elect, boy, that's a long title. I want to go back to what we were talking about, money in politics. Um, it, you have run for this seat three times. Your third time's the charm. Um, in 2018, your first time against Elsie Hastings in the primary, you raised $18,000. You loaned yourself less than $8,000 in that race. Uh, 2020, you raised $19,000 and loaned yourself $50,000, a lot more. This time, as we were talking about before, you raised $135 in contributions and loaned yourself almost $6 million. So you very clearly see the role that money plays, and, and it worked. So... While you were talking about the district's biggest needs are financial, is the poverty or the affordable housing. I mean, what do you what do you say to your constituents now that this money has has purchased, has allowed you to purchase? I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question. That this money has allowed to this money, th this money that you have invested in your own campaign, bought you television time to get out your messaging, to give you promises. Uh, you faced a a dozen. Uh, um, 
opponents in the Democratic primary who did not do that, who did not have the money to do that. Um, and so while your district is waiting for you to bring home some money to fulfill those promises, that, that's sort of a mixed message, is it not? No, not at all, because if we look at money doesn't win elections, and we knew that and we said that several times. If you look at people who self-funded, they usually lose. The difference in my race was not the money, it was the hard work we put in. We knocked on doors, we had a lot of people knocking on doors, we had over 200 volunteers. So you could never purchase an election because people are unviable. But what you can do is motivate, what you can do is fight for people in the community. And we had other people in the race who put just as much money into media that didn't even come close to us. It's because we had the heart of the people because we fought for the people. So the narrative that money wins elections, the narrative that we could have paid for something is totally false. What we did was hire the community, employ the community that needed it. We actually bought the change that people promised to do. There was a lot of people in this race who were actually wealthy also. How much money did they invest into the community? As a business owner, I've always invested in the community and provided jobs. This weekend, once we, we were supposed to be sworn in on Thursday, and we flew out our workers so they can actually see what they worked hard for, yeah. was to have a yeah. voice in Congress. Yeah, and Congresswoman, if, if, I'm sorry if I can jump in here. Uh, I think we should note out of fairness and for the record that there are lots of members of Congress over the years who have spent a lot of money to get there. Uh, mm -hmm. Rick Scott, senator, former governor, in all, we think has spent roughly $150 million of his own money on his election campaign. So you're not the first to have spent a lot of money. But I have to say, in your financial disclosure, which was late filed, uh, you essentially said that in 2020, from Trinity Healthcare Services, your family company, which you had, you earned $86,000. And then uh, last year, you earned roughly 83000 And then you said, you know, I had $6.4 million in other income from consulting, uh, SCM Consulting and EC Firm LLC. How did you get this enormous increase in wealth? Well, I've always been a consultant and I've always been doing profit sharing. So if you look at it, it was talking about profit sharing. So we have a family business in which we all have a piece of the problem family. But what we do as a business is that we invest long term in our business and in the community. So my my salary usually fluctuates anywhere between 80 or 90, depending on what I need to live off of and making sure that we're running and we're employing. But this time around, this is the first time that I actually took out part of my profit sharing and I actually took out money into my other businesses. And I did it because I understood the necessity. When I ran the first two times, I ran and I put in how much money we thought we needed. And I was always someone who didn't believe in money in politics. But when I realized how large the district is and how we had a short window to get the word out. So remember, yeah. we didn't have two years to run this time. We so you were taking equity out of your company, which has been successful. That's where this, these millions of dollars came from. Right, and we were especially unprofitable this year because this year we're in healthcare and we serve minorities. So we were able to serve minorities throughout the entire state of Florida where we vaccinated, we tested. Um, this year I felt like I slept in hotels more than anything because we were in Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa, um, just getting everything running. So this year was a different year for us and I felt like it was important that you know we take this, the, the stand now because it was just so needed that we actually can put forth policies that can help the community. So even 
even before the general election, you went to Washington. You were telling us that you had some meetings in Washington, and we spoke this week. Uh, we texted back and forth. You said the committee assignments have not been transmitted to you yet. Have you asked for any? Which and why and what do you plan to contribute? I mean, I guess it has something to do some of the health care administration since, since that is your wheelhouse. Yes, so my first uh, my first request is with ways and means, especially when we talk about the taxing structure, because I've always talked about we have a real problem with taxing and spending. We're taxing more working people more than we tax these large corporations. And then when it comes time for spending for the people who need it, we don't have that money coming out to us. So ways and means is definitely a way for us to make sure that we have more money for projects such as Social Security, uh, Medicaid and Medicare, just ensuring that our taxing and spending align with the actual principles of government, which is to serve the people. The second one is foreign affairs. Foreign affairs because understanding the um, the second generation, first generation or immigrant experience in the United States is crucial when forming um, a foreign affairs policies. And so that has always been my base and I've understood what we go through as being an immigrant and an immigrant family. So yeah. shaping those policies are imperative. All right. Final question here, if we could, Representative. I'm getting used to calling you Representative, Congresswoman. It's nice. Um, <laughs> Among the uh, people who supported your campaign were the progressive caucus in Congress, that is to say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar. Uh, and are you going to join the progressive pro uh, uh, you know, uh, group in Washington in Congress? Yes, I'm definitely supporting the Progressive Caucus, but I'm also supporting the Congressional Black Caucus. The Cong Congressional Black Caucus has been imperative in even my orientation, helping me set up for staff. I'm um, just in the relationships and continuing with the institutional knowledge that the previous Congressman Alcee Hastings had. So um, I have great mentors within the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah. Um, Chairwoman um, Joyce Beatty has just been excellent in showing me the ropes. Yeah, and in about 15 seconds, some of those members of the Progressive Caucus have not voted for issues for Israel funding the Iron Dome. Will you vote to support, say, the Iron Dome in Israel to resupply it? Of course I will. Uh, my relationship with Israel and the Jewish community has always been intimately tied. A lot of my success has been the mentorship through different members of the Jewish community. And I've always been a strong supporter of Christians United for Israel. So um, I'm still the same person. It's just that I believe in progressive ideologies, but I also believe in the pathway that's being carved out with the Congressional Black Caucus, especially yeah. as we head towards MLK. Um, well, we, we are so glad to speak with you this morning. First time we could call you Congresswoman and we will follow you as you go on through a re-election campaign. So thanks Thank for being with us. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for having You're and next, quite welcome. The, the scramble to seat two South Florida school superintendents. Boy, the sparks are flying in Miami-Dade as they hurried up their selection process. We'll be back to talk about it in just a minute. Brandon, thanks. We will get back to M4 weather updates as needed. Well, this week, the scramble to replace Miami-Dade's outgoing school superintendent, 
took a strange and somewhat nasty turn. The Miami-Dade board gave job candidates just a week to apply with a short list of standards and an intended start date in weeks. And now some powerful voices in the community are urging them to slow down. T. Willard Fair is among them and among the most vocal critics this week. He's the veteran president and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Miami. Mr. Fair, it is so great to have you with us again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Tal Fair, we're always glad to see you. It's been too long. So you have been yes, critical. Sir. Yes, sir. You've been critical of the process. You have said that it was hurried. What's What's been wrong with the way the school board has gone about trying to find a replacement for Alberto Carvalho? Such an important decision should not be rushed. Uh, to have one meeting and then decide that in less than two weeks, you're going to hire the person to replace the superintendent who's leaving the third largest school district in the world, meaning we can do that effectively in that time span? I don't think so. I think it's unfair. I think it's irresponsible. And I think that those who made that decision should be punished at the polls. So can I just throw out the elephant in the room, which I think someone probably threw out already this week, but there are people saying that all of these things show the fix is in, that there's somebody already chosen, that the process is a sham. Even leading the school board chair, Perla Tavares-Hantman, in a public forum that was the meeting this week to say, I do not participate in a sham, got a little bit ugly. Do you believe the fix is in? I believe that the fix is in. I was at the meeting when they arrived at the decision to move forward. It was obvious based on my understanding of the group dynamic process that the fix was in. How do you come to that kind of meeting, ask for public input, have about eight people, two minutes to make their input, and then move into making a decision? Uh, the chairperson did not follow Robert's rules of order. She did not relinquish the chair. She began to participate. And if you go back and look at the group dynamics, it's obviously anybody who understands the process. The do, you fix know, was in. do you know who who do you think the fix is in for? Having the slightest idea, but I can tell you it's going to be a puppet. I can tell you that the person will not be a person that's going to be aggressive and therefore be successful in dealing with the issues. So I don't know who it is, but it's obvious that if you do it that way, you got somebody already in mind. Uh, tell you, I suspect yourself have been part of search committees looking for successors for important public positions. I mean, you've been a voice in our community for more than half a century. Would you have said the Miami-Dade public school school system, the school board should have done what the Broward board did and find an executive search firm, go out, scour the nation, look for a number of candidates and bring them back? Would that have been the way you would have gone? That would have been part of the process, but I think the first part of the process is that the Dade County School Board should have defined exactly what they are looking for. Has there been a conversation uh, with the superintendent, a conversation with the community to define the kinds of issues that we're gonna be facing going forward, and then begin to match those concerns up with qualifications, and then hire a search fund to look for this kind of person. Well, they did set out, in fact, criteria. Glenna and I, I know uh, Local 10 News reported on it uh, all week long. I mean, they did say here are the requirements, qualifications we want a, uh, a candidate to have. 
Um, you know, they wanted somebody with experience, somebody who knows the community, somebody who had been an administrator at a high level in public schools. Uh, I mean, none of those things were a surprise, but they did lay out a list of uh, criteria. Go back and look at the process, though. We were supposed to sign up for a public hearing. The chairperson called on the first person. Who was that? UTD. UTD then said, we want an educator, a teacher, a principal, et cetera. And if you look at the guidelines and the conversation, it was obvious that the board, as it made its decision, made UTD's prerequisites, the qualifications for hiring. You know, in, uh, in our community, it's often helpful to look at past as prologue. And so 14 years ago, uh, Superintendent then Rudy Crew was ousted pretty unceremoniously. He actually was hired as an innovator, as a rock star, as a nationally known figure. He did improve school outcomes, but he was very outspoken, never got along with the board. Uh, and he was literally ousted, and it was ugly. And so Carla Matz, you mentioned the uh, union, the union president, teachers union president, had said this week, we don't want a politician. We want the best educator. But Mr. Fair, isn't it, isn't it a politician who is going to be the only kind of person to navigate the Miami-Dade school board and processes if you look at history? I think it's both. I think it's an educator who understands politics. He or she doesn't have to be a politician, but she, he or she must understand that the persons who are his or her bosses are politicians and therefore they must have the intelligence that allows them to get things done and navigate the political process in the interest of children. Yeah. In about uh, 15 seconds, Talfair, the school board is going to meet on Tuesday. Would you urge them not to pick a, uh, a winner, a superintendent, to hold off and let the community speak out about this process? Absolutely. If you look at the 16 to 18 people who have responded, uh, I've reviewed them intensively, and maybe two of them uh, I would interview to take this job. So I think they have an obligation and a responsibility to go back and make this search a real search. T. Willard Fair, the uh, president, CEO of the Urban League of Greater Miami, since 1963, a force uh, for good in our community. Town Fair, great to have you on our show this morning. Ditto. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you. All right, even before Miami-Dade and Broward's search for a school superintendent was underway. But speed isn't the issue there, quite the opposite. And the head of Broward's Teachers Union is here with that next. search for Broward's new superintendent is becoming more clear with now eight recommended candidates for the board to consider. Interim Superintendent Vicki Cartwright is one of them and the president of the Broward Teachers Union has publicly pledged to support Dr. Cartwright, BTU President Anna Fusco joins us now live. Uh, Anna, good afternoon. Great Hi, to see you. Hey, good afternoon, both of you. All right, so in your letter uh, pledging support for Dr. Cartwright, you wrote, Dr. Cartwright is the leader we need to move our school district forward during these perilous and uncertain times. Why, why do you think she's the one? Well, like I said a few months ago when it was presented to the board um, by school board member Nora Rubert, you know, there is many um, 
many things that Dr. Cartwright has put forward in such a contentious piece here in Broward County, you know, going head on with the governor with the ridiculous mask mandate, um, standing before the Department of Education, standing before a very strong MSD commission. And, you know, every single time that she's come forward, you know, she's brought solutions and she has left with the respect of, you know, every group she uh, has spoken in front of. You know, she's working around this district around the clock. You know, she's putting in the work. She's got the qualifications. So we have someone who has been around, who is doing it. And, you know, I know there's other candidates and they may look great on, you know, their applications or their paper, but they might not be able to come in and just do it. And then here we go again, starting, you know, right from ground zero, you know, getting a new superintendent accolated, working with our upper district management, you know, trying to learn the pieces of it. We are, you know, uh, the sixth largest school district in the country. Yeah, so, you, you, you know what's so interesting, though, is that when Vicki Cartwright was brought in after uh, Robert Runcie's legal troubles, his resignation mm -hmm. to be the interim, there was a stipulation that she would not be considered to be a permanent replacement until that contract was changed in October. Did you have something to do with that? Because this this is a, a superintendent that you want to stay. How did how did those politics go? Well, I think if you watched all the politics when they were trying to create those stipulations, I believe some of our upper management had a lot of say in it. You know, I, you know, Broward Teachers Union and the educators and all 27,000 employees, you know, they want a leader that's going to come in and see what needs to be done and actually get it done. You know, I heard our your previous speaker speak and dealing with politics and so forth. It, we can't have always someone that wants to dance to dance or they get outs like the particular superintendent you mentioned in Dade County who was, you know, doing stellar, you know, a stellar job. We want a superintendent, which all of the bargaining units gave in their um, conversations to the group that the search group. So they, they've heard from a lot of people and Vicki fits those qualifications. And we hope that if she is the one that will be our permanent superintendent, that she continues to do the job that she's been doing so well for these past six months. Yeah. Ana Fusco, uh, you know, to be utterly candid with you, mm -hmm. and we always try to be, uh, yeah. the Broward County Public Schools uh, have wonderful teachers, and most of the teachers do a fabulous job. Kids are learning. However, mm -hmm. enrollment is declining. Uh, student testing scores are not always so great. There's a lot of concern about school safety and the bond construction program has been way behind. I mean, whoever takes over this job has got a lot of work to do. Which she's been doing it and everything you've mentioned except for the bond piece, every single district is feeling because of the coronavirus and to attach any district with poor test scores when kids went through and what teachers went through and all of employees of, of every district has gone through and, and parents to sit here and attach test scores is just not okay. And uh, low enrollment is happening across, you know, the state of Florida, whether they're moving out of the state of Florida or they're, you know, deciding to continue to do homeschool, you know, nobody's out there and has those direct data of where all of these kids are. You know, Broward County stepped up and went knocking on doors. We teamed up with them to find out where the missing students are and what's happening and so forth. So we have, some of that data it's not all of it because you just can't reach everyone but I'll, I'll tell you right now what a mass majority did not live 
in the homes of the address that we had. So that's a telltale right there. Well, that, that is a problem. Ana Fusco, it's always good to speak with you. We know you. you will be there January 24th next week when the board is going to meet and take up these finalists for the job of Broward Superintendent. Thanks very much. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. All right, up next, we're going to take a closer look at the plan to build a new and much higher bridge over the new river for Brightline. The mayor of Fort Lauderdale, he wants a tunnel. He's with us next. For years, the marine industry in Fort Lauderdale has complained loudly about the railroad drawbridge over the new river. When it is down, it prevents bigger boats from passing either way. Ah, so enter Brightline. More trains, more often. That bridge will have to be down a lot more. So the State Department of Transportation wants to build a new bridge. And the city of Fort Lauderdale says take it under, as in a tunnel instead. And Fort Lauderdale's mayor, Dean Trantalis, is on the warpath really about that and joins us now live. Mayor, nice to see you. And did, is that valid? You are on the warpath about this, aren't you? Well, first of all, good morning and good to see you all again. Uh, I wouldn't call it a warpath. We're just, <laughs> bring, we're just trying to bring, you know, facts, figures, trying to create a reasonable solution to an opportunity here we have in South Florida to bring more mass transit to South Florida. You know, the goal is certainly something we can all agree on, but the method and how we get there is where we now are challenged. And that's where we are today. Uh, Mayor Trent, tell us if we can, we want to show you, although you've seen it, and our folks at home, I believe we have a graphic from the State Department of Transportation. Do we? I guess we do not. Anyway, it shows we're, we're getting it. Just hold on. Uh, the, the bridge, they have three alternatives. But the, the one that apparently is, and here it is, that is number one on their list is this bridge, which would be 80 feet high. It would take roughly a mile or a little more than a mile going up and down uh, over the new river. Uh, it would not prevent boats from moving back and forth or even sailboats with tall masts. And it would cost roughly about, I guess, $500 million. Uh, why do you object to that bridge, Mr. Mayor? First of all, um, you know, putting a bridge to the middle of a city, I thought we learned the lessons of the past that these solutions do not work. For example, in Overtown, where a highway ran right through a neighborhood long established, it cut a community in half, totally devastating it. You know, we've already have uh, physical artificial barriers between communities. Those who live on this side of the tracks and those who live on the other side, we've got to tear those, those barriers down. And, and to think that we're going to have a bridge run through the middle of a redevelopment area uh, and people living under these bridges, because you know the, the bridge itself is going to cut right through neighborhoods where people have homes, where their children are growing up. And this is a bridge that's being contemplated by FDOT just really does not make much sense at all as it pertains to Fort Lauderdale. So ha having having a, a tunnel, as we've seen in South Florida over the past couple of years, it, it's kind of cool to have a tunnel in different places. The Port Miami got one. But but to your point, tunnels need need ramps and need grade and, and the neighborhoods that are around the intended bridge or tunnel, won't they suffer either way in some respects? Not at all. 
A tunnel completely takes the entire train system underground and allows there to be open green space, connectivity between neighborhoods, uh, and it would actually help uh, traffic uh, on the roadways. If we take it, you know, in Sunrise Boulevard, Broward Boulevard, Davie Boulevard, bring it below grade, just imagine all those new trains that are going to be uh, going up and down the, the system as a result of this commuter rail system that we're trying to create, we no longer will have that interference with the east-west commuter traffic. These are the kinds of opportunities we have, and this is why we need to focus on why we need a tunnel. And whether it be a high bridge, a medium bridge, or a lower bridge, you know, uh, none of them make any sense. You know, Mama Bear, Papa Bear, Baby Bear Bridge. Listen. <laughs> so, in an effort to, if, if the tunnel, if the tunnel is going to be Goldilocks, what's <laughs> F Dot's opposition? Why not? I don't know what their opposition is. They keep pointing to costs, but we've shown how the costs are far less than they projected originally, significantly less. How do we do that? We went out to the people that build bridges and tunnels around the world. They came back to us and showed that the cost of a tunnel is far, far less than what they originally uh, contemplated. And actually the bridge itself that you, that you spoke of costs a lot more than what you're saying. They don't take into consideration the land acquisition costs as well as construction costs that, that they need to integrate into this system. So the point is, it's not about bridge versus tunnel. It's about a tunnel versus not having commuter rail. We need to have commuter rail here, but we are not going to sacrifice Fort Lauderdale in the process of trying to get a commuter rail system in South Florida. Yeah. The people in my community do not deserve that. We are a, we, we, this is a brand new area of the, of the downtown. It's an, it's an emerging area where young people are coming and new development and investment is happening. Why would you build a bridge in the middle of it to devastate the, the, the outcome? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, but we're continuing to work with FDOT and I think we'll find a reasonable solution. Yeah. Well, I did a, a little research, look back, and I see the Port of Miami Tunnel, which was built 10 years ago, took about four years to do it. It cost roughly a billion dollars. It was a public-private kind of a deal. Uh, this is not a public-private. This is, we're talking about funding from state, federal, and local sources. And even if it cost $1.5 billion, uh, where's, all, where's all that money going to come from, Mr. Mayor? Well, where's the money gonna come from for any kind of transportation project? We have to seek it from all the federal sources, state resources. Uh, you know, we have a one cent sales tax that we recently passed here in Broward County strictly to enhance capacity for transportation. Uh, we had a meeting uh, just a year ago with our, our new department secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who said it was music to his ears to think that we were going to finally be able to connect neighborhoods by eliminating these artificial barriers that this city has suffered from for so many years. So real, so, real quickly, Mayor, the um, FDOT, excuse me, FDOT is in, is in charge of this at the moment. Uh, the city is lobbying hard. Doesn't the county, the regional transit organization, the, the regional people have a say too, right? There's a lot of layers of bureaucracy that have to sign off on whatever happens. Is that right? Yes, the MPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, will really be driving this undertaking. And uh, I believe that the majority of the folks on the board there, I'm a member of that board. I think many of them really see that the, the, the quality of existence, the quality of life that we could, um, we could achieve if we have a tunnel versus a bridge. And, and also, Glenna, keep this in mind. It's not just about the construction costs, it's about social costs. 
is that you can't, you can't sometimes put a price tag on neighborhoods protecting people's homes, quality of life. No, no so you're, you're 50 Mr. Mayor, excuse me, I know you are right. There are social as well as dollar and cents cost and, and perhaps a, a large bridge would be more socially disruptive. We're glad to have this discussion Tuesday night. I guess you and your uh, Fort Lauderdale Commission will meet and have a workshop on this. We will be there local 10, we'll follow it. So thanks very much, Great. Dean. Thank you, thank you so much. Everyone else, stay tuned. We are grateful you have spent this hour with us. Remember, we are online 24-7 on local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved, have a great Sunday. So